Welcome back to A Dream and a Fear. Uh, Max and I have just got off a call with Tim Moulton, who's written a number of books on the infamous voyage of the Titanic. Uh, and we were focusing on the life of Captain Smith, the captain of the Titanic, obviously. Uh, Max, do you want to summarise some of some of the points? Yeah, I mean, I thought this was a really interesting episode, personally. Tim was very engaging and shed a, shed light on a lot of the myths around the Titanic. So from a sort of histori- historiographical perspective, it was a really interesting chat and also was a great way to transport uh, listeners back to what it was like to be on the Titanic that night. So please uh, enjoy listening to it. Yeah, and it's a pleasure to speak to someone so passionate about their topic. Um, and obviously, it's going to be the 110th anniversary uh, in uh, this month. So we, we also encourage anyone to go out and read, read his books. He's written three of them on the Titanic. Titanic First Accounts, 101 Things You Thought You Knew About the Titanic But Didn't, and A Very Deceiving Night. We'll now leave you in the warm embrace of Tim. So we're we're here with uh, Tim Malton. Uh, we're we're delighted to have him to here talk about Captain Smith's life. And to start things off, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Captain Smith's early life. Uh, we know that he was born in Staffordshire, and I was wondering if you could expand on that. Absolutely. So Smith was relatively lowly in early life. His father was a potter, and his mother was later a shopkeeper. But he went to a very good grammar school where, where he did well. Uh, he then joined the Merchant Navy. Um, his half-brother was actually a captain. So he probably inspired him to, to go to sea. And of course, at that time in the potteries, um, the sea must have seemed like a great adventure. And Smith then, in fact, started service with the White Star Line on the Australia run. So he definitely got to see the world. And yeah, like uh, you mentioned there, the White Star Line, he sort of quickly uh, rose to fame within that, uh, despite his class status. Do you know, what was it about his personality that uh, allowed that? Well, first of all, what we get from the passenger accounts is, is how sharp Smith was. I mean, he was properly clever. So, for example, a lot of the first class on these ships would be uh, senators or politicians um, or, you know, just people of society, basically. And Smith was very able to hold his own with those people and talk about politics. He was very urbane. He's very sophisticated. He was very charming. Um, he enjoyed, for example, I mean, this might be a bit of a random thing to say, um, but those listening at home might be able to sort of picture this. He used to like nothing more on a Sunday afternoon than sitting in a room on his own, smoking a cigar, and the air would be so still that he would watch the smoke curling around. And he let his daughter sit on his lap while he was doing this, provided she stayed very, very still so they could watch the sort of smoke. So he was he was a sort of romantic character, but also a very clever character. And his men, his sailors, loved him. So for example, he never used to shout. Um, he always spoke in a very quiet tone. However, when a reprimand was needed, he could bark out an order that would make a man jump to his feet. Um, he was also such a skilled captain that the sailors under him would actually flush with pride as he conned his ships into various ports and, and harbours around the world, especially New York Harbour. Um, so he was, funnily enough, he was known a bit for speed. He did like to go fast, but he was absolutely known for safety. And he rose to prominence in the White Star Line because of his safety record and how well he got on with the passengers. And latterly, he actually became known as 
the millionaire's captain. And people, in fact, chose the passage on various ships by which ships he was going to be captain in. Excellent. Um, so building on that kind of line of thought of, of his reputation for safety, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the incident he was involved with the HMS Hawk. Uh, and, and I was wondering if you could sort of explain whether you see that as a, an ominous sort of foreshadowing of what was to come. <laughs> well, there's two points there. First of all, yes, of course, it is. It is and was ominous. Um, but equally, it showed his skill as well. And I think this is the... Um, maybe not exactly dichotomy, but this is a kind of almost the irony of Smith is that he is the right man for the job in that he's absolutely skilled and experienced. On the other hand, he's almost the wrong man for the job precisely because he is so experienced. And I'll explain that. It's because he has been used to, he's the Commodore of the White Star Line. He's the, 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 the client's customer's favorite captain. And so he's always chosen to be the captain of their latest and greatest and largest vessels. Now, you might say, what's wrong with that? Well, I'll tell you what's wrong with that, is that shipping tonnage around the uh, end of the last century and the turn of the um, 20th century uh, in the early 1900s was in fact so um, burgeoning that ships were getting larger and larger and growing at an incredible rate of knots, as it were. So in other words, ship, uh, Smith was used to, to captaining the largest ship, ships in the world. So for example, his command previous to Olympic and Titanic was in fact the Adriatic, and she was the biggest ship in the world. But to give you an idea, in terms of tonnage, Titanic and Olympic were in fact twice the tonnage of Adriatic. So what you have to realize is you've got this man who's extremely experienced with with giant vessels but that these vessels are twice as big as the giant vessels that he's used to fantastic and yeah i guess uh, fast forwarding to 1912 a date that everyone knows um the date that the titanic went down um but sort of going back to the beginning um accounts leading up to that disaster highlighted that captain smith had an awareness of ice in the vicinity, yet he chose not to reduce the speed of the ship. What sort of caused Smith to take this reckless approach? Well, it wasn't reckless and I'll explain why. Um, but I'd just like to finish off before we get into the North Atlantic and before we get among the icebergs, just like to finish off on your excellent question about the accident uh, to, um, to Titanic when she was on her maiden voyage coming out of Southampton water. So she left on um, Wednesday, the 10th of April, 1912. She was supposed to depart at noon. She departed at 12.15. She was a little bit, a little bit late um, and there had been a cold strike. So what was happening was there were ships laid up along the side of the harbour. And what that meant is it constricted the passageway for Titanic, uh, the, the free water that she had to run in. And as Smith was pr proceeding slowly uh, and the propellers were turning on Titanic, they sucked in, they had the effect of sucking in um, the New York from the harbour side. And um, her New York's, that is, ropes, uh, mooring ropes, snapped like pieces of cotton. And they went off with the report of pistol shots. And suddenly the New York was being you know, um, sort of coming out Titanic. And had the two vessels touched, um, in fact, it was likely that the Titanic's passengers would have had to be transshipped and the maiden voyage would have had to be cancelled. But what happened was that Smith's quick thinking applied a touch of thrust on Titanic's port propeller. And that actually had the effect of washing the New York 
back into her birth. Now, what's interesting is New York was previously the largest ship in the world as well in her day. So you have this giant Titanic with this skilled Captain Smith, just a touch on the propeller, washing New York, the old previous uh, once upon a time largest ship in the world, back into her birth. So what you have there in one instant is you have the skill of Captain Smith actually preserving the voyage and actually carrying it on. Whereas if he'd been a less skilled captain, the irony would have been that Titanic's maiden voyage would have actually been cancelled at that stage. Um, and then the, the other point about this, um, about this suction point, which I think you mentioned earlier, is that um, when he was captain the Olympic, which um, for those listeners who, who aren't aware, is actually a pretty much identical ship to the Titanic, a slightly older sister of the of the twins, as it were. Um, he was captain her on the 11th of September, 1911. And Smith liked speed, as I mentioned earlier. And what he was doing is he was racing a Royal Navy vessel called HMS Hawk out of Southampton water between Southampton and the Isle of Wight. And um, as, the, as, as the Navy ship accelerated, he thought, oh, I'll show you what we can do. So he accelerated with Olympic. And the ships were neck and neck until Olympic started to overhaul the, the, the Hawk. And then the huge displacement and, uh, and a huge tonnage of Olympic compared to Hawk suddenly caused HMS Hawk to swing uncontrollably. And her battering ram went through the starboard quarter. That's the stern quarter of the Olympic. Um, now, her automatic watertight doors dropped because as soon as um, water comes in, uh, floats in the bottom, um, release magnets on the heavy watertight doors, and she was automatically sealed. And of course, this then gave people this almost false sense of security that these ships really were unsinkable. They, you know, Olympic would have sunk from that damage with Hawk under Captain Smith had there not been these automatic watertight doors. Um, so I hope I'm giving an impression of Smith, who was actually safe, Smith, who was skilled, the ships that were very safe, but equally being on the cutting edge of technology, uh, he was even pushing the envelope for his own knowledge. And in fact, Titanic was actually outside of his envelope of previous experience. Yeah, that's interesting you say. And he, from that, he clearly had um, an eye for speed and possibly that you know fast forward to the titanic and the the sinking of it did that did did that sort of reckless approach at you you obviously this earlier corrected me did that play a role in, <laughs> in 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 the downfall of the titanic well i mean with hindsight yes it did because if titanic had um had stopped for the night uh, she wouldn't have run into anything um but i think it's important that we uh explain for for, for your listeners um about this because this is a myth which really clouds people's judgment of both Titanic and Captain Smith. And I, I hope I can paint a picture that explains it. Um, the first thing to explain is that passengers don't like being late. Um, and um, Titanic's great genius, if you like, was that she would provide a trio with the, her sister ship, the Olympic, and her planned sister ship, the Gigantic, that became the Britannic, that they would be reliable, reliable, reliable. So it wasn't about speed. The speed was about Cunard um, and the, 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 the Lusitania and the Mauritania. They were the fast ships. Titanic was the luxurious and reliable service. And Titanic was built as a Wednesday ship, which means she was always due to arrive into New York on, on, when, on a Wednesday. Okay? Um, so the, the fact is there that reliability is what they're, what they're going for. However, safety is also paramount, of course. And as I said, Captain Smith was known as a safe captain. So what he did is he was aware from um, radio reports that there was indeed lots of ice in the track, okay? 
So what he looked at was, what are the visibility conditions like? And in fact, the night Titanic sank was one of the clearest nights in history. I know it sounds odd to say that, um, but it really was. Uh, I think the, the temperature, the, the pressure was um, 1,059 millibars, which is one of the highest areas of pressure in the North Atlantic. And it was so crystal clear um, that in fact, my research has demonstrated that, that she could probably see about 80 miles that night when normal visibility would have been more like half that from the crow's nest. Um, I'll come on maybe much later to why that extremely good visibility actually caused a slight delay in, in spotting the iceberg later on. But for now, let's just be aware of, of this. Smith knows there's ice in the area. He knows the passengers don't want to be late. He knows that it is clear enough, or he thinks it is clear enough, to see icebergs. And captain after captain testified at the Titanic inquiries, both in America and London, in 1912, after the sinking, um, of would you maintain course and speed in ice? And every single captain said that they would, including the captain of the Mauritania. And what they said was the great danger of the ice region is the danger of fog and not the danger of ice. Reason being, if you have ice in clear conditions, you can normally see it a mile and a half away and you can easily avoid it. Whereas if you have ice and foggy conditions, then you really can't proceed at all. And the reason you can't proceed at all is that Titanic and, and other large ships can't actually make any headway at all um, of their own at, at less than six knots. That's what's called their steerage way. And underneath that speed, she needs tugs in order to maneuver her. So what Captain Smith was faced with is he wanted to get through the ice region as quickly as possible while the clear weather held, because he knew that if a fog descended, not only would it delay the voyage, but it would actually make the voyage more dangerous. Because even if he cut speed down to six knots, which was her minimum steerage way, he could still have an almighty accident with an iceberg that was unseen in the fog. So I hope that listeners will understand this, that he was actually going fast in order to be safe. Yeah, thank you. That's very uh, enlightening for us and our listeners. Uh, I'm sure most people didn't know that. And uh, <laughs> in, in, in every account of the night, then decisions were made that defined whether individuals uh, lived or died, unfortunately. And your book, Titanic First Accounts, paints some of these tragic moments uh, uh, quite uh, beautifully. Is there a specific personal account for you that, that encapsulates this? Gosh, there are there are so many. I mean, one of the most thrilling tales is is a baker aboard Titanic who actually stood on Titanic's stern as the ship sank. And uh, in fact, contrary to various film portrayals, she sank so gently and her stern was so beautifully rounded and the, the sea was so perfectly calm that in fact, he assures, he assures uh, readers that he didn't get his head wet. <laughs> so um, I kind of really like the idea of this baker who was drunk, by the way, he, he had a few to sort of fortify himself. But I think this idea of this baker who steps off the end of the ship and doesn't get his head wet, I, I really like that. But um, what I will tell you is the story that stays with me the most is, is one that actually encapsulates what it's like to be on Titanic while she's sinking rather than now when we're looking back on it. Um, and that is to say that when the first lifeboats went away, it was regarded as a great act of bravery to get in them. It was regarded that passengers would be much, much safer on the ship. And a story which illustrates this absolutely perfectly is there was rather a glamorous actress um, named Gibson on Titanic, Dorothy Gibson, quite a famous screen actress of the day and, and a great beauty of the day. And um, the most precious possession that she had aboard Titanic 
was a golden ivory miniature of her mother. And this was her absolute prized possession in life. So um, when the first class lifeboats were ready to be lowered, and, and she got in lifeboat number seven, which was the first one to be lowered, um, she passed a, a first class passenger a gentleman called William Kent on the stairs uh, going up in first class. And she said, oh, you know, I'm just going to get in a lifeboat. Uh, you know, uh, please, will you look after this very prized possession for me? So she pulled out of her pocket this ivory and gold miniature of her mother and gave it to William Kent, who was uh, obviously a gallant kind of first class gentleman passenger. So she then gets into the lifeboat. He stays on Titanic. Now, of course, she, against all odds, is saved in the lifeboat. No one thought they'd be saved in the lifeboats because everyone knew what the waves were like and that the waves would come up the next morning. And in, and in 1912, many people couldn't swim. And the idea of being on the vast North Atlantic in a tiny lifeboat, you know, the chances of being saved were very slim indeed. Whereas the chances of Titanic with all her watertight compartments and radio telegraphy, she was very, very likely to, to survive, according to the passengers. So um, what then happens is, of course, he drowns on Titanic. And then a few weeks later, the McKay-Bennett, a cable lane ship, goes out from Halifax to, to rescue bodies, to, to recover bodies. And they recover William Kent's body. And in his pocket is, in fact, Dorothy Gibson's um, uh, you know, miniature of her ivory and gold um, locket of her mother. And um, it is taken out of this dead man's pocket and then returned to Dorothy Gibson, who is surviving and she receives it. Um, but I think that's a slightly beautiful story. It's an interesting story. And it's a story that actually tells a very human tale, uh, a very tragic tale. But it also actually illuminates how different Titanic was then and there, being on that deck that night, to how different it is to how we think of it now. That's incredible. And yeah, I guess it's one of um, a number of sort of personal stories your um, book states. I, as, a, as a historian, I assume the, the film Titanic is sort of the bane of your life uh, when it comes to myths. <laughs> um, and I guess, yes, you know, one, yes. of, one of the things that resonates with most people after watching that film is the moment where the musicians uh, stop playing. Um, in order to calm the passengers. Is there actually any truth in this story? Uh, well, the short answer is that there is some truth in it, which I'll explain, but it's not, as you're aware, as a historian, it's not the truth. Um, so first thing I'll say about the, the, the 1992, I think it is, a Cameron film about Titanic is, it is wonderful for two reasons. Firstly, the high budget and wonderful recreation of the physical Titanic um, brought Titanic alive and it brought it to a new audience of millions and millions of people who had never before particularly heard of the Titanic. So it got Titanic into a whole new audience. So for that, I'm, I'm very grateful to James Cameron in the film. Um, but yes, as you indicated, what I'm less grateful for is that as, as a historian as well, there are so many wonderful stories on Titanic that are absolutely gripping and remarkable that you really don't need fake ones. Um, so what annoyed me is kind of the, um, the rushing around with, with handguns and tying people up in the, uh, in the purses, you know, cabin and all that sort of stuff, because there are so many amazing stories about stokers with their fingers and hands cut off by 
by ropes and uh, people burned in, and people coming up to the first class spattered in blood. And there are incredible stories that no one knows about, apart from a few people like myself who've studied these things, um, that are just utterly gripping. And what it would have been possible to do, it would have been possible to sew together the most incredible film about the Titanic whilst also telling the truth. Um, but unfortunately, Hollywood likes a narrative. And, and unfortunately, as, 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 as historians know, uh, in fact, history as it unfolds doesn't really have a narrative. History as it unfolds is a series of snapshots that kind of don't necessarily sit together or make any sense. And then what we do as, as observers afterwards, when we write those histories and tell those histories, is we then, we then give the narrative arcs. We put the narrative arcs on those events. And then when you really understand the truth of what happened in certain events, they often don't fit the narrative arc that people expect. So, um, so yes, and, and an example of this is in fact the, the, the band. They were fantastically brave and they did indeed play to calm the passengers and they did indeed play until the last lifeboat had left. So there you have the truth of it. But now for the fictional part, which is that in fact, Titanic floated for another half an hour or certainly 20 minutes after the lifeboats had left. And during that time, rather sadly and understandably, the musicians split up, went down to their cabins, got their possessions. Um, they actually strapped their instruments to their backs. Um, many of them took off their shoes and socks. Well, that's, when I say many of them, I mean many of the passengers actually took off their shoes and socks because they knew they were in for a swim, because they had half an hour to prepare for the freezing waters of the Atlantic and knowing there were no lifeboats left. Um, and during that time, I can assure you, there was no playing of musical instruments. <laughs> Well, thank you for that uh, nice uh, historiographical uh, lens and uh, picking up on that notion of of uh, the the film anyway having some some themes. One of the themes in it is class, definitely, and um, it, it's often seen as a perfect sort of uh, representation of the sort of strict Edwardian class distinction. And uh, I suppose the death rates of the third-class passengers somewhat reflect this. Could you expand uh, on to what extent you think this is the case? Absolutely. Um, so many fascinating points there. Um, I think I'm going to be controversial and say that class paid, played uh, less of a part than, than, than sort of humanity and sociology, as I'll explain in a minute. So first of all, the classes were indeed segregated. They were, they were in fact birth and gates, which is metal gates across between the classes. Um, now the reason for this was not actually because Edwardian society regarded third classes as, as, as in any way you know, terrible, um, but it was because it was a law. Uh, the United States of America would not allow ships to enter the port of New York unless third class was segregated. And this was to stop the spread of infectious diseases. So in other words, it was in fact um, laid down uh, that the gates must be closed at all times during the voyage between third class and second class. Okay, so that's the first thing to note. Um, the next thing is, is very interesting, which is that um, it took Titanic 47 minutes to work out that she was in fact doomed. So just painting the picture. So she has a gentle bump with an iceberg. They assume it's absolutely nothing. As a precaution, they stop the engines and they go down and they have a look. They call, they call Andrews, the, the, the uh, designer who was on board for that maiden voyage. And he then has to do all his calculations and observe the inflow of water. And then he has to go up and report back to the captain. And this is in the days before intercom and obviously mobile telephones. Um, so by the time 
Smith, uh, sorry, by the time um, Andrews informs Captain Smith that the Titanic is doomed and that it's a mathematical certainty that she cannot stay afloat, 47 minutes have elapsed since the collision. Now, what you should understand is that until an emergency is declared, then the ship is under normal regulations and therefore those gates had to remain closed. So what I'm trying to say to you is that it wasn't until midnight that Captain Smith gave the order to unload the lifeboats and sent out the first distress signals. And at that exact time, he ordered the gates to be opened. So when you see in the films, third class people um, pressed up against the gates and clamoring against the gates, that is before a state of emergency was was announced and before the captain and the command and control centers on Titanic were aware of it. Now, of course, they were rather panicked because some of them had, you know, had had heard about water coming into cabins and things like that. So there was a period when they couldn't pass, but that only lasted for 47 minutes after the collision. And then after that, there was an hour and a half uh, or an hour and 20 minutes in which they were all allowed uh, up to the boats. So then I want to come on to the next point, is that as soon as the gates were opened, which is as soon as an emergency was known, Captain Smith detailed first-class stewards to go down to third-class to assist third-class people to the boats. So there were actually first-class stewards lining uh, the route, showing third-class people how to get to the lifeboats. Now, what really did for third class uh, and in fact second class and by the way there were a higher percentage of casualties among second class males than third class males okay which is a very much an important point to note um but what really did for them was the women and children first rule this was the most tragic rule given on titanic that night if the rule had been families first for example or um uh, you know, women and children and the men of their choice first, <laughs> then, lifeboats then lifeboats would have been filled very, very much more quickly. But what you have to remember is in 1912, first class and second class, uh, often men or business women, in fact, in first class, were traveling on their own. They were about their business and they were quite um, alacritous. They were quite lithe. So, for example, if you and I are alone on a ship and something happens, we don't have to get together lots of luggage and children. We don't have to have a big conference with the family about who will go and who will stay. We just nip along where we're told to go and then we're there. Um, the problem with Titanic in 1912 was the third class were all traveling en famille as, as families, often as large families. They were also traveling with all their worldly belongings. And they, did, and they were going to new lives in America and for new jobs in America. And there was a sense that if a woman and child were to leave behind their husband on Titanic to die or drown, there was a sense in which, well, how could she, in the, in the days before the welfare state, how could she and that family and their children survive without the, in those days, increasingly the breadwinning you know, husband in those days? Um, and there's another factor, which is in 1912, you were an adult if you were 13 or above which meant you could work down a mine or anything else. And what that meant was that the women and children rule excluded 14 year old boys from the lifeboats. Now, you ask any mother of 14 or 15 or 16 year old children, you know, um, would they leave them on a sinking ship? And the answer is they would not. Um, and so the slightly controversial truth about the huge death toll in third class is that they decided to stick together. They chose to stick with the ship instead of split the families up and leave all their belongings and worldly possessions on the Titanic. 
That's really interesting. Thank you, Tim. And we actually do, from your book, we do see some examples of boys, teenage boys, putting on bonnets and trying to sneak past officers, don't we? Yes, I mean, um, yes, slightly. I mean, these tales get better in the telling. Um, There is, in fact, no hard evidence that anyone actually disguised themselves as a woman to get into a lifeboat. No, no, don't get me wrong. It, it, It comes from... It comes from, um, I think Mrs. Astor uh, is told that a, a young boy can't get in the lifeboat. And then she, an adolescent boy, and then she puts a girl's hat on him and says, uh, now, he's a, now he's a boy, he can go, sort of thing. Um, so there is, there, it sort of developed from that and also developed from rumours. Because obviously, um, you know, people were quite horrified, particularly women folk, obviously, were quite unmen folk, were quite horrified by the amount of men who did survive the sinking of the titanic and because it was women and children first there must have been this idea of hey they must have all dressed as women to get into the lifeboats um and this was a kind of impossible story to disprove i mean in fact i can tell you that they've grown from kernels of truth like the one i gave but in fact i can tell you no one dressed as a woman to get into a lifeboat who wasn't who who wasn't you know wasn't a woman um but interestingly interestingly um the reason why this came about was that (laughs) Titanic was a big ship, and there were different officers on each side in charge of the lowering of the lifeboats. So you had Captain Smith as a kind of super captain, if you like, over the whole vessel. But you had First Officer Murdoch, who was in fact the captain on the um, on the starboard side of the ship. That's the right-hand side. Um, and then you have Lightoller, the second officer, who's actually the captain on the port or left side of Titanic. And interestingly, Murdoch's rule on the right-hand side was women and children first, and then men when no more women and children come forward. And he saved a lot more people from his side of the ship. And then you have Lightoller on his side of the ship, who is women and children first, and no men, whatever, and lower lifeboats empty if there are no, if there are no more women and children coming forward. Okay? Um, so some men were in a situation where if they had gone to the port side they would not be allowed in lifeboats but if they went to the starboard side they would have been allowed in after women and children so i think that gives you an idea of the sort of confusion that reigned mm. on titanic yeah and that's a nice again link back to your point earlier as history actually being in the moment a sort of confusing uh, mess uh, and only later do we see the sort of patterns uh and yeah and, and... i mean a great example if sorry if i could no, just no, say no, a great go, go example ahead, of that. go ahead no, 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 no. A great example of that is lifeboat number five, uh, which was controversially regarded as the private lifeboat of, of the Duff Gordons. Okay, Duff Gordons were great celebrities in their day. His wife uh, was, in fact, Lucille Duff Gordon, the famous dress designer and underwear maker um, and a great beauty of her day. And they ended up in a lifeboat with only five people in it. Um, um, and basically this lifeboat People think it was a private lifeboat that was sort of hired by him for the purpose, and it was all a great scandal. Um, in fact, the reason why that lifeboat was lured away earlier, and you, you might like this, it's because it was a small emergency lifeboat, and it was on the same davits uh, or falls um, as a much bigger lifeboat. And let's not forget, with hindsight, we know that Titanic stayed alive and afloat for two and a half hours after her collision. But actually, her designer believed that she would sink after an hour. So what you have to realize is Titanic lived for a lot longer than she was expected to live. And therefore, all that the crew really wanted to do was get the lifeboats in the water so that swimmers could then climb into them later. They also believed they could get more swimmers in the lifeboats on the water than they could in the ship. Uh, They were also worried about the ship listing. And if a ship lists, you can't use half the lifeboats. You, You know, automatically, if a ship lists, 
half the life boats are inoperable. So what they wanted to do was lower all the life boats as fast as they damn well could while mm-hmm. Titanic was on an even keel. So coming back to my point, they lowered the uh, emergency boat when there was just a knot of a few people standing around it. And they said, jump in and lower away. And that is because, you know, they only put anyone in it because someone was right next to it. Had no one been right next to it at the time, they would have lured it away empty. And the reason for that is that they wanted the ship to still be afloat when they lowered the much larger lifeboat from the same falls later on. Wow, fantastic. Thank you again for clearing up another uh, Titanic myth then. (laughs) Um, And uh, perhaps on the same theme, as the ship sunk further, the the panic uh, set in, and your book tells one story of a man who tries to pull himself onto a lifeboat. Uh, Mm. The occupants don't let him because they think it's going to capsize. And then he says... Uh, to the people in the boat god bless and good luck and this sort of incredible show of courage or honor has by some historians been attributed to smith could you actually tell us about this moment and and whether what we actually do know about captain smith's final moments yes absolutely so um i mean i like to think that this is captain smith okay um because of the way he says boys, because of the way he says, all right, boys, okay, boys. Um, now, it's highly likely that this has been, been mythologized and that it was just another passenger or, or another crew member. Could have been Chief Officer Wilde, for example. Um, but the myth, the myth, if you like, is that Smith was carrying a baby and tried to hand it up to the lifeboat. Um, I suspect a lot of this is, is, is because Smith was regarded as a great hero who went down with his ship and a very brave man in contrast to a lot of the men who were regarded as being cowards who survived, particularly, obviously, Bruce Ismay, who owned, owned the Titanic. Um, what we do know of Smith's last moments is, first of all, he remained very calm. Um, there are indications that he was very slightly confused. For example, um, he was used to Olympic and he, wasn't, he didn't remember in the heat of the, the moment that, in fact, some of the windows on Titanic were actually locked, whereas on Olympic there were no windows in that place. So there, there are a few times where... He's sort of not familiar with Titanic, but I think you'd expect that from any crew man uh, on a new ship. Um, so there was a slight confusion. He was obviously in a terrible situation. He knew pretty much that he had to go down with his ship. He had a 14-year-old daughter back at home. He was only three years away from retirement. I mean, it was a terrible and dreadful situation. Um, but he actually bravely took a, a header dive from the bridge of the Titanic. Uh, so unlike the film where he sort of goes down uselessly inside the ship, he actually takes a header dive uh, and actually tries to collect people up and bring them to lifeboats. Um, unfortunately, the water was so cold, it was below freezing, that you would only survive for about 20 minutes in the water. And um, Smith either either you know didn't want to get on a lifeboat uh, or he was refused entry to a lifeboat or he was helping people until he succumbed to to the cold and yeah you you mentioned that the 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 coldness of the water do we know of any survivors uh who who sort of fended for themselves in in that water well uh allegedly this baker i told you about earlier jocelyn uh allegedly he in fact um did survive for two or three hours holding someone's hand on a lifeboat while it was sort of getting inching its way towards the the rescue uh, ship the carpathia um i'm not sure how true this is because everyone else died who hit the water within about 20 minutes uh, or rather went unconscious within 20 minutes so uh, he did have lots of layers he was very drunk although normally being drunk actually actually is a disservice to you unless it acted as a kind of antifreeze. Um, 
but generally speaking, um, no one did. I mean, for example, the the Japanese man who was picked up uh, by Fifth Officer Lowe, um, very bravely was picked up. He actually stamped his feet and started rowing and actually survived. But the reason why he survived is that he was on a staircase. He found a floating staircase in the wreckage and, and one of them lashed himself to a door and one of them was sitting on a staircase. So people who were able to stay up out of the water, mm. they were able to then live in lifeboats. But people who got fully wet tended to not survive in the lifeboats. That said, um, Second Officer Lightoller, who was extremely rough and tough, he was used to gold prospecting in the Yukon and he was used to frozen rivers and he was just a properly hard case, according to his his other other crewmates. Um, he did survive, but he had, you know, you know, sort of icicles on his eye, eyebrows and all that sort of thing. And he, he, he jolly nearly died of exposure in the in the night as well. Wow, amazing stuff. And um, I was wondering, you mentioned the Carpathia or the Carpathia there, sorry. And I was wondering if you could, that's a very interesting story in itself, um, the Carpathia and the, the Californian, if I'm right in, in pronouncing that as well. I was wondering if you could maybe tell listeners a bit about those two ships and how their fates are intertwined with the Titanic. Well, that, that's a brilliant question because um, the Carpathia is well known as the rescue ship of the Titanic. I'll tell you a little bit about her because it's a fascinating story. She was heading in the opposite direction uh, from New York towards Europe. And she was about 56 miles away from the Titanic when she picked up her distress signal. One of my favorite stories about Titanic is that everyone imagines um, that Titanic sent out a distress signal and then the Carpathia came to her aid. But it wasn't like that. Um, Titanic sent out a distress signal and Carpathia's radio operator wasn't listening, <laughs> um, which is rather brilliant because they didn't have 24-hour radio watch in the middle of the night in 1912. It was one of the things that was brought about because of the sinking of Titanic. It was one of the lessons learned from the sinking. So what's brilliant is Titanic is sending out these distress signals. Carpathia is a very nearby ship and does not pick them up. And then uh, Cotton, who is the, the radio operator on the uh, Carpathia, he decides to telephone Titanic because there is some mail. He, he rings Kate Race and realizes there's some mails awaiting Titanic. So he literally rings up totally casually before getting into bed and says, hey, chaps on Titanic, you know, hello, um, we've got some, there's some mail waiting for you at, at Kate Race. And they, they, they buzz back, you know, Phillips and Bride on Titanic. And they basically say, in modern language, they basically say, you've got to be joking. You know, we're sinking, come now. What, where the hell have you been? What are you doing? Um, um, and, and then he has to run to uh, Rostron, his captain, and say, it's a Titanic sinking. Rostron can't believe it. One is if it's a wind-up. Cotton obviously says, no, it's absolutely true. Rostron then cuts all steam and hot water from every other part of the ship and puts on full steam and heads to Titanic and eventually rescues everyone by about 8.30 the next morning. So that's Carpathia's rather amazing tale. But Californian's tale is, is, is even more fascinating. And in fact, it was Californian that was on, tight, on Captain Smith's mind more than any other ship that night. Um, and that's because from the deck of the Titanic, all the passengers and all the crew could see a nearby steamer um, called the Californian that was about 10 miles away from Titanic. In fact, she may have been 12 or 13 miles away because the clear conditions made it look like she was possibly slightly nearer than she was. Um, but it's such a tragic uh, set of circumstances. Basically, Californian's radio operator is awake at the time that Titanic collides. By the way, Californian actually tells Titanic that she's stopped in the ice. And in fact, it is Titanic's radio operator's fault 
that they don't pass that message on to the bridge. Um, not that that materially affected the speed of Titanic or the outcome, but it is ironic that the nearest ship that was later blamed for not coming to Titanic's aid, in fact, did warn Titanic just before the collision and was basically told to shut up mm. um, because she didn't warn Titanic in the right way. She she didn't put MSG into prefix before her message, which meant that it was just chit-chat rather than a navigational message which would have taken priority. So unfortunately, that was ignored. Um, but then, I mean, it, it goes on and it gets remarkable. So then he goes to bed before Titanic realises she's sinking. So he, that Evans, is then asleep on on Californian and when Titanic's distress signal comes out. So then they see Titanic potentially sinking and well, they certainly see her sending up rockets. So they then start to more slam signal to Titanic. Um, but unfortunately, because of the atmospheric conditions that night and Titanic sank in what's called a thermal inversion where the very cold Labrador current was kind of uh, mixing with the very warm waters of the Gulf Stream and created stratified layers of air in the atmosphere. Point being about that, it caused the stars to flash or to appear to flash. And it also caused the Morse lamp signals between Titanic and Californian to appear to flash in a different way to the Morse code. And it therefore scrambled the signals. Um, so mm -hmm. it's this incredible tragedy going on. And you've actually got Smith Morse lamping through, um, through, fifth, uh, through Officer Rowe, Quartermaster Rowe, I should say, saying, we are the Titanic sinking, have your boats ready. And then you've got California on the other side saying, oh, she looks to be burning oil lamps. It looks like flickering oil lamps. So they just, just unfortunately failed to communicate. Um, and then, of course, it's the next. And by the way, Captain Smith details various lifeboats to row in the direction of the Californian because he assumes that Californian is coming towards Titanic. Um, in fact, in a twist of fate, California is actually twisting at her on her helm. And it appears that she's coming towards Titanic when, in fact, she's just pointing towards Titanic and then she starts pointing away from Titanic and I think she's going away which she never actually did she was just you know twizzling on her mooring if you like um so anyway so there you have an incredible tragic situation and Captain Smith was very preoccupied with this vessel and why this vessel was not not coming to her aid thanks Tim um moving back to the Titanic and I guess the you know just just from listening to you over this last half an hour uh, you just see the great variety in accounts of the same night. As a historian, how do you sort of paint a d definitive picture? It is impossible to do that. Um, what I would say is that <clears throat> there are no heroes and villains on the Titanic. You, you can forget heroes and villains in that story. Everyone is trying to do their best. Everyone is <clears throat> trying to be brave and helpful. Uh, that is the best way I can sum it up. Um, you know, so Ismay, who is the great villain of the piece, he in fact was uh, working tirelessly to, to try and fill the lifeboats quickly. In fact, Smith and the other more experienced officers, well, Smith and the officers are trying to, their big fear is panic. So they want to reassure people, have the band playing and, and get the lifeboats loaded safely and calmly. Um, Ismay is so petrified about the calamity that's happening that he's actually rushing around, waving his arms about. <clears throat> he's got his suit over his pajamas. He's sweating like a pig. And he's actually responsible for a lot of the urgency of getting passengers away in the lifeboats. Um, but of course, he then survives. And of course, his crew, uh, or rather his employees, as it were, of the White Star Line don't survive. His captain doesn't survive. A lot of his friends who he invited on the trip don't survive. His secretary drowns in the sinking. 
and he is obviously regarded as a great coward. Um, you know, in fact, uh, you know, two points. First of all, being he was actually very brave in helping to evacuate people. And secondly, I think when he did step into a lifeboat, he was ordered to by, by the officers uh, who felt he was a passenger and treated him like a passenger. But of course, and, and then there's a great instinct for survival and he had a young family as well. And I dare say, I dare say he regretted surviving Titanic potentially, or certainly half of him regretted surviving Titanic. Um, but we humans have a great instinct to survive. And um, I'll, I'll mention a gory story for you is that, um, you know, I'm aware of, of, of even family members who the, the male party who's stronger in the water ends up by a natural reaction, kicking away a young female relative uh, who was clinging on to him and causing him to drown. Um, now, in a way, the logic of that is if some, if, 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 if a young girl is clinging on to you as, a, as an older man and is causing you to drown, then you, you not kicking her away is not going to help either of you anyway. You're both going to drown. Um, but I can tell you, it's very much every man for himself when you get into the water. And I'm afraid it's just absolutely heartbreaking that people were fighting with each other to survive. Um, so, yes, I hope that takes some of the gloss off it as well, because it was just the most ghastly occasion. And in fact, um, a lot of Titanic survivors never talked about it. Um, and I think if I really understood the real horror of Titanic, I don't think I'd be talking about it either. Do you think this is a bit of a curveball? Do you think you would have gone down with the ship like Captain Smith? <laughs> oh, I really like that question. I really <laughs> like that question. Um, I'm going to answer it. Um, no, I would have survived because in my head, I'd have been on it on my own. I don't know why, but I would have been. And... Um, and I would have done what Lawrence Beasley did, who's my favorite survivor. Um, and he was a Christian scientist. Um, and as a result, he thought about things in a very sort of scientific way for 1912, I mean. And therefore, the account that he's passed down to us called The Loss of the Titanic is a very modern account. It's a very scientific account. And what he basically did was he sort of used his brain to sort of think, where should I stand? Where is there space? What should I be doing? And he just sort of managed to survive. Um, you know, he didn't have to push anyone off the deck or off a lifeboat in order to do it. He just sort of was in the right place at the right time and sort of smart and alert on deck early and on his own. Um, so I think I would survive from that perspective. However, that's probably because when I got into Titanic, since I was seven years old, I was a single man. I'm now a married man with teenage children. And I think now, as an adult on Titanic, I think I would definitely, definitely have gone down with the ship and I'd have made sure that Charlotte and the children were, were safely in a lifeboat. A nice uh, little uh, contrast there between the two stages of your life for our listeners anyway. Um, <laughs> I, I was also wondering, sorry to go back a little bit in time, but you earlier said something about the visibility being a a problem, the, the great visibility for the iceberg. Could you expand on that a bit? Yes, I won't expand on it too much or it will become a science program and bore, bore everyone to death. <laughs> um, but, um, but when you can see a very, very long way, like if you're looking at a mountain range far away, there's a slight blue tinge to them. So even on a really clear day, when you're looking at a mountain range that, for example, you perhaps couldn't normally see, it will have that blue haze to it. And indeed, it's that blue haze that tells our brains that those mountains are a long way away. And that is what's called the Rayleigh scattering of light. And it is, in fact, what makes the sky appear blue to us. So coming, coming back to your point and being less scientific about it, um, when you can see a heck of a long way, um, you can actually, you get a slight haze caused by the scattering of light 
off the molecules in the extraordinary depth of air you could see. So, for example, for example, in a normal water haze, like a fog, you get um, what's called aerosols in the air, which is particles of water, which absolutely cause a real haze, which you can't see through at all. It's very thin. But when you have high pressure and extremely clear visibility, then you do get a haze as well. But the haze is caused by the scattering of light in the extraordinary depth of clear air that you're actually seeing through. And um, that created a slight blue or white, a slight haze on the horizon, all the way around the horizon, just a very thin layer of haze. And the thing is that everyone on the ship knew that it was not a real haze. They knew it was a kind of haze caused by the clarity of the night, if that makes sense. And so they therefore, you know, understandably assumed that they would still be able to see icebergs just as well. Um, but unfortunately, the slight haze in the distant, distant, distant horizon reduced the contrast with the icebergs that appeared only much nearer Titanic. And so therefore, it had the effect of not only making the icebergs seen later, because it reduced the contrast, but in the final complicated thing I'll say on this point, um, because it only camouflaged sort of the top half of the iceberg, as it were, and the rest of it was seen against the sea, it had the effect of reducing the apparent angular size of the berg, which meant that the berg was not seen until much later. In other words, if it's a big berg, you'll see it earlier. But if you think it's a smaller berg because you're seeing only half of it because the rest of it is hidden um, against a haze of the same colour, then it's going to, you're going to see that at the same time that you would have seen a smaller berg. Um, so I don't want to get too technical, and I have written an entire book about this um, <laughs> called um, a, very, a Very Deceiving Night. So if any of your listeners are of a more scientific and atmospheric bent, um, then do, do have a look at that one. Yeah, no, I do do recommend having a look at that. And um, interestingly, one man actually predicted this, and it's mentioned in one of your books, uh, the American author Morgan Robinson, some 14 years before the ill-fated voyage. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is an absolutely fa fascinating tale. So um, he realised that shipping was getting bigger and bigger and faster and faster, and that the demand for speed was getting greater and greater, and he wanted to warn the world about this. So he, he made an imaginary ship. Bizarrely, he called it the Titan, because obviously, you know, speed and power, uh, <laughs> as someone might say. Um, so basically, his imaginary ship, the Titan, sailed. Um, it wasn't even on her maiden voyage, actually. It was on about her third voyage to New York and um, hit an iceberg and was never seen again. Um, and then, of course, uh, a few years later, this absolutely happened in Titanic. But it was even more remarkable than Robinson thought. You know, she was called the Titanic. She was on her maiden voyage. And some survived um, to tell the tale. So it is, it is a remarkable example of art imitating life and a life imitating art. And on that point, I will just explain why we are all, or so many of us are still interested in Titanic and why Titanic is still relevant. And that's because, um, that's because the ancients, you know, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, they had this, this wonderful cathartic thing called, called tragedy. Uh, and they had their great tragedians and, and their great tragedies and Sophocles and all that sort of stuff. Um, and the thing is that we don't have that tradition now. We don't have that great tragedy. But the human mind still has this sort of yearning for this idea of the awesome power of nature and the sort of fallibility of humanity. And that is provided by the story of Titanic, because Titanic represents and was this greatest ship ever made at the time by the cleverest minds of the day with the most experienced sailors being the most careful possible. Everything was done that was humanly possible to make this a safe trip. 
And then suddenly, on her maiden voyage, out of the darkness, out of nowhere, Titanic is felled by this primordial mass of ice in the darkness, a bit like something coming out of left field in the universe. Um, and I'm afraid that is this sort of human condition um, that we will never be, you know, we can be hit by a meteorite at any moment. And Titanic encapsulates that. So Titanic is a tragedy for the modern audience. And that's why she's such a touchstone for everyone and will remain so. Fascinating and a really nice, yeah, sort of um, link to, to, yeah, I suppose our cultural situation as well. And um, on that point, indeed. On, the more indeed, indeed. On, on the more practical uh, level, how do you think that the story of the Titanic became so mythologized, apart from the deeper sort of cultural or, or sociological aspect? Like, can we blame the film or is it the press at the time? What, what do you think? Right. It, it was mythologized right from the word go. So, um, so for example, you, Titanic was one of the first disasters in history where you had almost real-time commentary on it. So you had radio for the first time and suddenly you had news being global. So Titanic is one of the first global disasters that's reported globally and almost as it happens. But there was a crucial delay of about four days um, between radio communications that were very much like Chinese whispers, where people can't quite believe the Titanic sunk, and yet there's reports that she sunk. So therefore, journalists who don't want to say she sunk sort of say she's a bit injured and she's limping to Halifax. And so what you start to get in this vacuum between the first incredible reports over the wireless and then the actual truth of 705 bedraggled people arriving in New York uh, four days later on, on Carpathia, in that vacuum, all manner of myths of the mind were created. So the mythologizing started right there and then carried on. Um, but equally, in any amazing touchstone story, be it of the ancient Viking myths or be it any event that we're a long way from in history, um, there will be mythologizing. And as I've explained, Titanic is extremely hard to understand if you look at it without a narrative lens. Without a narrative lens, it's 2,227 people doing largely different things and having largely very different experiences of the night, varying from freezing to death in, in, in a very shocking way to um, actually surviving in, in, in reasonable comfort and in some cases with, with your dog and your luggage and your fur coat. Um, so, so again, I think, as you said, this problem that historians have with getting to the truth, because um, is the truth what is told afterwards or, or is the truth this kind of eclectic bunch of, of little mini narratives that happened at the time, many of which don't actually hang together? Um, for example, no one could remember Titanic if you hadn't got the heroic Captain Smith and the, the dastardly Ismay, the owner. Um, whereas, in fact, you know, if you realise that there are no heroes and no villains and, uh, and that actually Titanic was a very well-found ship, she could actually turn extremely well, they weren't drunk, they weren't being reckless, they were keeping a sharp lookout. You know, when you start to realise all these things, all of the planks that we, that we get on board Titanic from sort of fall away. Thanks, Tim. Uh, and I guess sort of drawing it back to uh, Captain Smith, He's largely remembered today for his sort of stoicism in the face of adversity, a sort of incarnation of British spirit. Do you think this is a fair legacy? I do. And, you know, it almost gives me bumps in the back of my neck saying that. I, I absolutely do. I think, uh, I think he was a genuinely heroic person. I think he was a careful man. I think he was a clever man. But he knew his responsibility. Um, 
I think he did try and save himself when he was in the water at the end. And by the way, captains are allowed to do that. Captain the Lusitania saved himself from the Lusitania. And once the ship has left you, then you no longer have a command and you no longer have a duty to, to drown. Um, so the, he was perfectly within his rights to try and save himself. Uh, obviously, he didn't. And he wasn't well placed to save himself because he was an older gentleman. Um, but, yeah, he was absolutely a heroic figure and, and a wonderful sort of link back to the beginning of the conversation and, and Hanley and the Potteries where he grew up is that there is a marvellous monument to Captain Smith um, made of bronze sculpted by none other than Captain Smith's wife. Um, yeah. and uh, Sorry, Captain Scott's wife. I'm so sorry. Captain yeah, Scott's Scott, wife. Scott, um, yeah. yeah, and what's so incredible about that, and this is a sort of thing that may blow the blow the minds, uh, if not the ears of your, of your listeners, which is that Captain Scott uh, died in the South Pole, in the Antarctic, in uh, uh, January 1912. And no one knew about it, okay, until after the Titanic sank, if you see what I mean, um, um, in April 1912. So people didn't then find out about, about Scott's disaster until six months later. So so in other words, um, Scott, this sort of British hero with all his wonderful mechanization, conquering the world and, and the ice in the South, had already completely come a cropper uh, in the Antarctic in January, but no one knew this. Right. And then Smith and Titanic, relying on what they knew and progress and technology um, in April, had come a cropper again in the ice, um, being outside of our experience um, and then, of course, it wasn't known what happened to Scott until after it was known what happened to Smith. And then the wife of Captain Scott crafted this wonderful memorial. And a final irony is that Smith's reputation has almost been rehabilitated recently because the people of Hanley would not have his statue uh, where Smith grew up. And it actually had to be erected in a nearby, in a nearby town that would have it. Mm. Um, so I think there's a lot of interesting differences of how history views the same events at different times. Wow, yeah, thank you. And that's been a really interesting theme and also an opportunity for us to plug our uh, Tom Crean episode uh, <laughs> that we have now, which is a great way to come full circle. But uh, no, thank you. Some really great insights into uh, into history and, and all sorts of things and, and, and obviously Smith himself. But we'll just uh, sort of move over to a few general questions that we'd like to wrap up the, uh, the, the episodes with. And um, firstly, what... Tim, what was the thing that personally drew you to Captain Smith? Well, I think that in a way it was Titanic that drew me to Captain Smith. Um, so I first became interested in Titanic when I saw the best film ever made about Titanic, which is um, A Night to Remember. It's a black and white film from 19, something like 1952 or 56. Um, it's got Kenneth Moore playing Lightoller. Um, and I recommend anyone who likes old films and can cope with black and white films to to, to, to search it up. Um, a Night to Remember, written by Walter Lord, which is also, apart from my own, obviously, the best books ever written on the Titanic. Um, and, 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 and it was that it was that, that got me into it. And then um, my uncle was taught maths by Lawrence Beasley, one of the famous survivors mm. of the Titanic. I, I, I hasten to add, my uncle is not a spring chicken. And in fact, he was taught maths when he was very young by a very elderly, in fact, 80-year-old uh, uh, Beasley. 
So wow. you can imagine, you know, the impression that had on my uncle. And as a result, there were some books around his house of first-hand accounts, such as Beasley's and Gracie's. So I, I had an introduction to Titanic A at an impressionable age, B through a wonderful narrative of a night to remember, and C through these wonderful first-hand accounts, which obviously you've touched on, which I've then edited Penguin in my in my most recent book. Um, but the point being, that's a great way into the Titanic is how is what really happened that night, and also from the inquiries which I've read, there's a huge amount of um, stenographers' evidence of what the witnesses actually said within, in this case, the American inquiry within a week of the disaster. So everything's very very fresh. Um, so, so that's what got me into Titanic. And then of course, from that, I learned about the millionaire's captain. And then I learned more about his, his private life and, and what he was like as a, as a family man. And then he'd moved from Liverpool down to Southampton, um, with the sailing. Um, and in Southampton, there were whole streets in which every single house was touched by death, by the sinking of the Titanic. Mm. Interesting stuff. Um, and I guess, you know, what, what would be the most valuable lesson uh, Smith's life teaches us, do you think? Well, I think this is quite a good one. I think this teaches us sometimes that what we know works against us. So, um, you know, we prize people who are more and more and more experienced. And yet, even those very experienced people can be faced with circumstances and situations which is outside of their experiential envelope and and can come a cropper and i think one lesson for society today and this might be a bit controversial but i think that we have a cancel culture and a throwaway culture where if someone's put in a position of power and responsibility and something goes wrong then they are cancelled and that is it but often the people in those positions who failed in those overwhelming circumstances were in fact not only the right people and the best people for the job at the time, but they are now absolutely the right people going forward. And yet they get thrown on the scrap heap. So um, I think that's what his life teaches us. Yeah, very nice. Uh, very nice lesson there. Perhaps our listeners will be able to apply to their own lives. Uh, <laughs> and finally, just a... Uh, just a fun question for the end. Um, if you had the chance to, to go to the pub with Smith today, what would be the one thing that you would ask him over a pint? I think, I think I'd ask him what his favourite cigars were. Um, I think I'd quite like to sit in his study. Uh, not, not on his knee, I hasten to add. Um, <laughs> And kind of watch the swirls going around and maybe quietly talk about some of his favourite passengers and things like that. I suppose what I'd ask Smith is, um, is about Ismay and how much pressure he was under to, to beat the Olympics maiden voyage arrival time. Um, I might also ask him his own opinion about why he was confident that he could see ice and, and why they saw it too late. I'd also ask him about the logbook. Titanic's logbook has, has been lost um, but I'd like to know what the entries were in the logbook. And um, mm. uh, I'll just leave you with this. And I've done some research around the other ships in the area. And several of them do mention abnormal refraction and miraging around the area where Titanic sank. So I would, I'd probably ask him about that. And I'd ask him about the uh, abnormal refraction on the horizon. Brilliant. Thank you, Tim. We're about at an hour. So I'll, I'll leave you to go and enjoy your Wednesday evening. But yeah, thank you from us. It's, it's really great to meet someone so passionate about their subject. So yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you both very much indeed. 